last chapter in your Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Wayne asked the question this morning, what has happened to the church? The apologetics experts of the world, people who travel the world and have a view of the church that is broader than a local church will all tell you that the answer to the question of what has happened to America is the church. The world doesn't change. Human nature doesn't change. The desires for me don't change. But the church has changed. Our relationship to the Word of God, George Barna, who does church surveys and Bible-believing churches, in a recent survey in a country where 98% of people profess to be Christians, and in the select group that call themselves Bible followers, 18% of Bible-believing Christians open their Bible daily. Ravi Zacharias describes us as the most illiterate generation in the history of the church. We don't know what God says anymore. How can we do what God says if we don't know what God says? So our relationship to this book, is this really God-breathed? Is it really true? Is the person that we just sang of in our songs this morning, this Jesus Christ, is this a history book that is his story? As Wayne pointed out yesterday in men's ministry, that wherever you're reading in the scriptures, there are signs that point to him. Did he 6,135 years ago, according to the Bible, speak into existence all time, space, and material matter that exists today? Did he do that? It took science nearly 5,000 years, um, actually over 5,000 years, in 1960 when um, carbon dating and um, thermodynamics and the law of relativity and all of those things point to something that was falsely believed until that moment. It, it had always been, especially in atheism and evolutionism, it has always been assumed that this is eternal. The galaxies are eternal. And now all of science says, no, actually they had a beginning that there's actually a point that the, the radioactive explosion that is still going forward, the, the, the burning out of the sun, the, the theory of relativity, the Einstein's theories and important people and carbon dating all point to the fact that no, actually, there was a time before time, space, and matter, and all these things came into existence at once in an explosion. Did this person do that? 
everything that you create is less than you. These galaxies and universes that no one knows how big they are. No one knows how deep the ocean is. Think of the science that we have today. The Bible says that he throws our iniquities to the bottom of the sea. And in 2020, we have no technology to measure the full depth of the ocean. Did someone speak all of that into existence? Did he go to a cross? Did he die? And did he raise again? If the answer to those two questions is yes, then the third question is, will you listen to him? Because this is his story. We are studying the rapture of the church. There's so much information that i got to limit myself today, but we're studying the feasts on Saturday morning given to Moses as they came out of Egypt, and there are seven primary feasts, and all of them are fulfilled in Christ. And 1,445 years after they were given, Jesus fulfilled Passover on the exact day, on the exact month, at the exact time in the day that they celebrated Passover. He died on the cross. On the exact day that they celebrate the unleavened bread, Jesus, the unleavened bread, went into a tomb. On the exact day that they celebrated first fruits, Jesus rose from the dead. And that is the first Sunday, where Sunday becomes worship. And then, 49 days from that day, the festival of weeks is fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The next feast to be fulfilled is the Feast of Trumpets. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 4, we are told that at the sound of a trumpet, Christ will return for his church. The Feast of Trumpets is next weekend. And I am not telling you to write down the return of Christ as next weekend. But what I will be bold enough to tell you is that every feast to this point has been fulfilled on the exact day. Could it be this Feast of Trumpets, which is celebrated every year as the inauguration of their spiritual year, each year? Um, we are to the point in our study of the rapture where Paul points to primarily, Paul points to the rapture in every letter that he writes, and the aspect of the letter that he wants you to be most concerned with, Dave referred to this aspect of the rapture in Sunday School in Titus chapter 3, is the day that I will stand before him, one-on-one, -on -one, and he will assess my life as a believer. Um, so there are multiple judgment seats. There is the Greek word bima, which is a word that we would use for like the umpire at the U.S. Open that's going on right now. Um, but it is a seat that is described, describing a throne where Jesus will judge his followers, 100% of which will be in heaven, 100% of which will be judged for what they did and did not do for Christ. There's a white throne judgment where most of the world and 100% of those people at the white throne, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, 
will be sentenced to hell. We look at this book looking for those judgments. We ask the wrong questions. What can I get away with? What do I have to do? What if? And if we read this book on those terms, we're looking at those judgments. If we read this book on God's terms, we realize that he condemns no one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not be condemned, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Everyone who believes in him will not be condemned. But everyone who does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. People condemn themselves. When we read the Bible on God's terms, there are over 8,800 promises in this book to anyone and everyone who says yes to the authority Jesus Christ. So we are going to study in the coming weeks the, the judgment seat for a believer, one who has said, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, you are my Redeemer, I will follow you. Um, but there's so much in the Bible, and we're just going to scratch the surface in the next couple of weeks, just answering a simple question. Who is this person? See, Jesus died on the cross, and according to John 17, thought of every person who will ever live and realizes in omniscience, which is way too big for my brain, I'm thinking of you all. I'm paying for you all. I love you all. Come to me, all you who are weary. That's the heart of the King of Kings. I want to step back from that. Don't lose sight of that. But before we realize his heart, we have to realize his authority. To the person who says, God needs to accept me on my terms if he is a good God, we need to step back from this enormous heart that only loves and say, he created you. He created everything. He rules everything, everywhere, all the time. You will come to him on his terms. His terms are grace. His terms are mercy. His terms are, I am God and you are not. So we're going to look a little bit in some of Scripture today as to who this person is. And, and when we read the Bible, we see both. Go, go find promises in the Bible. Judgment is the alternative. So he comes to Adam in Genesis 2.16. He says, Adam, you're free to eat from any tree. But don't eat from that one. If you do, you will die. He always gives the boundaries, and he always gives the outcome. The decision is yours. The result is his. 
We will come to him on his terms, my choice. The result will be his choice. We will refuse him, my choice. The result, his choice. In Revelation chapter 22, we're looking at the last words recorded of Jesus. And I want to read um, verse 12 through 14. Look, I am coming soon. What's the simple answer to when Jesus is coming? Soon. That's always been the answer. That's, that's the modus operandi in which you are to operate in. Jesus is coming soon. Look what he says here. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are who, those who will wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. I want you to notice in verse 12 there, as Jesus, as you picture the glory of Jesus coming for the church, as you picture him at the glory in the glory of us included coming at the end of the tribulation, He's got his reward with him. He can't wait to give it out. I'll meet with you guys later, and then I'll bring some rewards. No, they're with me. I'm carrying them. I've been longing to see you, and what I can give you is with me. I want to give it to you. I'm anticipating giving it to you. I want to give it to you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're working our way back. We're going to take a look in the Old Testament as to who this person is. Hebrews chapter 11. This person carrying these rewards. Why does he appear so earnest and so excited to give them to us? That's his heart. His authority is in place, and so is his heart. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. We learn that verse as kids, and we often don't know the second half of the verse. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Question similar to the questions Wayne asked. Is your life identified as earnestly seeking Jesus? David wrote in the, 30, um, in the 34th Psalm, he says that those who seek him lack no good thing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this book is true? Do you believe that he's coming one day and his reward is with him? Do you believe that he rewards richly those who earnestly seek him? Let's go back to John chapter 10. We're working our way to the Old Testament quickly. We will spend much time in the New Testament on this King of Glory. But in John chapter 10, the apologetic gospel, the defense of the truth, who is Jesus, how is Jesus, and what must you do with Jesus, is the gospel of John. John 10. John 10, and as we're reading there in verse 9, he makes clear as he says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
John 11, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Here he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Saved from justice and judgment and condemnation. They will come in and go out. Wait, we just read that in Revelation chapter 22. Same Jesus speaking here. They will come in and go out and find pasture, this green pasture that David speaks of in Psalms 23 points to the ultimate green pasture. Verse 10, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The richest life on earth now is a full life. That's not only possible, it's why he came, that you would have a full life. Well, how do you know that means now? Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, he says some things that, that don't seem visible in this world, but they're promised by the person who has the authority to promise it. John, or excuse me, Mark chapter 10. Verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. And look at the list here. You'll like the first part of the list. You might not like it all. What's the hundred times, Jesus? Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. When we read through the Sermon on the Mount, the, the highest level of blessing from God is to be persecuted on behalf of Jesus Christ. We have opportunity more to do that today probably than we've had in our lifetimes. The, those opportunities will increase. And if we stay faithful, the promise here is that the blessings will increase as well. Turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 37. wasn't me who counted them all, but I will trust a person who is trusted by others that there are 8,810 promises in the Bible. That's a lot of promises. You could maybe mark this chapter. This chapter has more promises in it than any chapter in the Bible. And we will see again. You can read this chapter two ways. You can say, okay, what's he going to do to me if I'm bad? What's he going to do to me if I defy him? Or you can say, I want to see his promises. And they are both there. They're inseparable. So in Psalm 37, beginning in verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. That's simple language. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you want what he wants, he gives you what you want? That's what this verse says. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. 
This is the heart of the Savior written by David by the power of the Holy Spirit. Drop down to verse 11. Here's Jesus' sermon material on the Sermon on the Mount. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. For a long time, I didn't know what that word meant. Meek seems like this. It's not. Jesus was meek when he had a whip in his hand, too. <laughs> Power under control. That's a good definition of meek. Paul says that the secret to I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength is to be content in any and every situation. A meek person, Jesus was the meekest, is, God, what you ask me to do, I'm content with my role. That's meek. And he says here, they will inherit the earth. Drop down to verse 16. Better a little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. How many would like to have less than what they have? Better a little that the righteous have than the wealth of the wicked. Which part of your community is it harder to find God? In a wealthy community or a rich community? Jesus says in the gospel that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Is money sin? No. Is the love of money sin? Yes. Do you love money more if you have less or if you have more? That's what is being described in these verses. Verse 17, the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Judge, promise. Verse 18, the blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, promise, and their inheritance will endure forever. Another promise. Drop down to verse 22. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, promise. But those he curses will be destroyed. Destroyed by his decision? No. Destroyed because he's a holy God. Because he's righteous. Because the scales will be balanced for every person who doesn't follow Christ. That's not his desire. He says in Ezekiel 33, I think, verse 14, that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But if the wicked say, we don't want you, we don't want you, we don't want you, he says, okay, you don't have me. I will give you what you want. And destruction is all that is left for them. Drop down to verse 29. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it. How long? Forever. Verse 34. Hope in the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. Then the wicked are destroyed. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. And that's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Verse 37, consider the blameless. Observe the upright. Paul says it this way, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So consider the blameless, observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace. Again, in Psalms chapter 34, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, 
Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. David is writing both of these psalms by the wisdom of God, explaining the heart of God. He wants to bless you. Refuse him, and he has no other choice. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. So I look forward to heaven, but I can't imagine going through this life without him. Verse 40, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Turn to the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. We're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time in this book. Isaiah chapter 6. A very familiar passage. We look at it often. This is about seven and a half centuries before Christ. One of the, I will say it's awesome. I also would say it's cool. <laughs> that in 1947, uh, a shepherd boy wanders into this cave. I don't know if it was storming or why he's just, if he's just like Jason and he's curious. I want to see what's back there, what's going on over here. And he finds what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls finds a lot of things in there, but among them he finds the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are Old Testament books written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, and one book that they find is the largest prophecy book in the Old Testament, and it's Isaiah, in its entirety. These are written on papyrus, which dissolves after about 400 years. This is... 2,000 years, 2,100 years since they were put in this cave. A cave is damp and moist and it wards off the dissolving of papyrus. And this scroll is in its entirety. This is the scroll that in Luke chapter 4 Jesus opens up and reads from and says, this is fulfilled now. This scroll is a copy of what we are reading is the original of Isaiah, but it's still 160 years before Christ. The oldest um, manuscript, manuscript is simply before they had copy machines, before they made books, they were handwritten. The oldest manuscript before that moment was the Leningrad Codex, which was dated about 1000 A.D., this boy picks up a scroll that takes us backwards 1,125 years. And they lay them down side by side. And they're the same. That's God. That's the same God who inspired Isaiah to write this. The significance of all of that, the prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that Jesus fulfilled when he came the first time, along with the prophecy after prophecy of when Jesus will come again, are written in this scroll. And in Isaiah chapter 6, 
he is asking he is answering the question that I'm asking today who is this Jesus why do we have to follow him and Isaiah is already following him but he doesn't have a clear picture either and suddenly God allows him to see heaven and he sees this person on a throne verse 1 in the year that King Uzziah, a, a famous and an upright king, dies. In other words, this is a time of mourning. I saw the Lord. Guess what that word there is. I'll get back to the meaning of it in a second. But in Hebrew, I saw Adonai. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory, and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah has this repentance and this picture of his, the forgiveness of his sins, if we read on. And, and at the end of it, this person says, who should I send? And Isaiah says, send me. He sees Adonai. Adonai is the name of God for master, ruler, king. The Greek word for that is kurios. So when we get to the New Testament, and Paul says you must confess with your mouth that he is kurios, that he is master, ruler, king. Guess what? You don't have to do this for, your, for his benefit. He is. But what Paul is saying is you want what he has and all he has to give you, then he is you Adonai so Isaiah sees Adonai master ruler king you never see the names of Jesus over a hundred of them in the Bible accidentally he sees Adonai on the throne and we know from John chapter 12 verse 41 that this is Jesus so there is God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit the only visible one of the three is Jesus. John tells us in the Gospel of John that this is Jesus. So there are many religions, multiple ones in Mendota, Illinois, that don't believe Jesus is God. Here is a passage. Take them to John. Isaiah sees Jesus on his throne. He falls before him. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe to me. And he gives him a picture by taking a coal from the altar and touching his lips and saying, See, I have taken your sins away. And Isaiah says, Send me. This is the person that we are singing about this morning. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We are getting a picture of this person. We are... Psalm 37 of these 8,110 promises has the most in one chapter. The book of promise in the Bible is the book of Isaiah. So while there are 8,810, over one-eighth of them are in this one book. 
There are 66 books, and an eighth of those promises are in this book. Good book for you to read. Um, have you read through the Bible this year? Have you read Isaiah? Do you plan to read Isaiah? Do you want to know who it is that you worship? In Isaiah chapter 9, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. The Galilee of the nations is Zebulun and Naphtali. Guess who came there? Jesus. Nazareth is in Galilee. The disciples are from Galilee. Isaiah is prophesying this 740 years before it happens. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove that what happened there was prophesied before it happened. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned, that same light that needs to shine in the good old United States of America. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, ladies, Thursday nights, write down in your Bible, Judges chapter 7. He's referring to the victory of Gideon here in the book of Isaiah. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, a bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire prophesying there of what we will read in Ezekiel 38 and 39 of the battle of Gog and Magog verse 6 how will all this happen for unto us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on david's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever the zeal of the lord almighty will accomplish this we don't have a lot of time let's work our way through these verses Unto us a child is born. Bethlehem. God, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter, a lot of the Psalms prophesying the birth of Jesus. Micah 5 2, he would come and he would be born. Isaiah chapter 7, he would be born to a virgin. All of these things point to this birth. This eternal being takes on flesh inside of a human being so that he can experience every form of pain that we experience, every form of temptation we can experience. He can then go to the cross and pay for every sin we experience, and he can rise from the grave so that the government are on his shoulders. The question legally in this country about all of the things that they are saying our laws today is, who is in authority? The government is on his shoulders. 
in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18. He is the, in, the image of the invisible God. He is the ruler over every authority. In him, he sustains and holds together all things. He is the head of the church, not the government. When Thomas Jefferson wrote Separation of Church and State, it was government stay out of the church, not church stay out of the government, because the whole government was in the church then. The National Bible Society was formed by our original Congress, and one of the things they did is they made sure that there was a Bible at every desk in every school in the United States of America. And we're reversing those things today, but the government is on Jesus' shoulders. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, not a son is born. The King of Kings the sovereign Lord over everything is given in a son, in a child. So the child comes. That doesn't mean the son was born. The son, who is the sovereign authority over everything, is given to humanity. We read on. He is the wonderful counselor. Who has the answer to your question? He does. He is the mighty God. He's El Shaddai. He is the everlasting Father. Wait a minute. How can Jesus be the Father? Look at the name closely. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. What does that mean? It means in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Who? Jesus. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Everything that you see, touch, breathe, keep track of was created by Jesus. Meaning, He's Father Time. Time did not exist until He created the heavens and the earth. When or who will decide the end of time? Jesus will. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. The sword of his mouth said, let there be light. Isaiah, or Isaiah, Revelation 19, the sword of his mouth will say, judgment, end, the new heaven and the new earth. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace, John 16, 33. You'll always have trouble in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In me, you can have peace. The greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Daniel 2.44, Daniel 7.14. He will reign on David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice for those who want justice and righteousness for those who want righteousness. The first time we see Adonai in the Bible is Genesis 15. He has had a relationship with Elohim, the mighty creator. He's had a relationship with Yahweh, who is the self-existent one who pursues you as a relationship personally. And in Genesis 15, Abraham is distraught. He thinks he's going to be killed. He thinks he's not going to have a son. He thinks the promises aren't going to be too. And he says, Sovereign Lord, which is in Hebrew, Adonai, Yahweh. And God says, I am going to do all this. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Paul says, confess him with your mouth, sovereign Lord, Adonai, Kyrios, and believe in your heart that what he did on the cross was for you and everything he has becomes yours. Undeservingly, amazingly, true. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. skimming the surface, kind of like skipping a rock. Isaiah is like a Bible within a Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the Bible. There are 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. There are 39 on the Old, and beginning in chapter 40, we're anticipating the New. So it's a Bible within a Bible. And we begin in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and her sin has been paid for. He's prophesying the reality of Jesus on the cross as if it's already happened, which in God's eyes it has. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. It's accounted for. It's completely paid. Verse 3 a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So 750 years before it happens, we know this from the Dead Sea Scrolls, John the Baptist comes on the scene and they say, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. Who are you? He says, I'm the, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So John the Baptist is... Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, and he fulfills that by preparing a path for Jesus Christ. Verse 4, every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall be level, the rugged places plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And, the peop and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, simply saying, I'm telling you, it's going to happen. Verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? This is Isaiah the prophet taking us back to chapter 6. All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands or endures forever. Verse 9, you will bring good news to Zion. Go up to the high mountain. You will bring good news to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord, the Adonai Yahweh in the Hebrew, the master ruler personal relationship or in the same person comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, this is what Jesus is referring to in Revelation 22, 12. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Reward and recompense are kin to each other. Reward is this is the blessing I am giving you. Recompense is he 
he says in Mark, we read earlier, that when you face persecutions, I will bless you. Recompense is, because you lived for me, I give you this. So, just like Revelation 22, 12, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. Let's look in um, Isaiah chapter 51 for just a second. you don't mind writing in your Bibles, it works out perfect in mine. Verse 3 is at the top of a page. Write Ezekiel 36, verse 35. This is pointing to the millennium, the thousand-year reign, which is described extensively in Isaiah and Ezekiel. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. For joy, or joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the sound of singing. This isn't a dogmatic statement. If you ask me the question simply, Jim, where do you understand the Garden of Eden to have been? Where Israel is today. I'm not gonna not gonna live my life making that claim, but he says the same thing here that he says in Ezekiel 36, 35. Israel doesn't look anything like that today. When you see the pictures on the news at Tel Aviv or Jerusalem and you see all this dry land, it is a result of what they have done as Jews and as Israelites. But remember when they went into the promised land, what it was like? They carried grapes on their shoulders that it took two men to carry a rack of them it was a land flowing with milk and honey it was the richest place on the planet before the Jews went in there and here a prophecy is given that it will be like the garden of Eden in the millennium let's turn in our Bibles to chapter 60 we're, we're skimming the surface and we're missing a lot but the judge the judgment and the promises are the same. We're studying the judgment seat of Christ, which will happen at the rapture. In Isaiah chapter 61, we're looking at this person that will be the same person on the throne in Isaiah 6. Chapter 61, imagine being in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, and he walks into the synagogue one day. He asks in Luke chapter 4, the attendant there, he says, would you please grab me the scroll of Isaiah he gets it and he opens it up before them and he begins reading the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor what's another word for good news the gospel your offer to have an eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ by confessing his word and believing in your heart that he has paid for your sins on the cross to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and he hands it back and, and it says in that room, everybody's eyes were fixed on him. Why did he read that? And he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. That's me, he says to them. And if they would have accepted his offer, the 
the second half of verse 2 would not have been necessary, and that's why he didn't read it. But for those who reject, the second half of verse 2 is important. A day of vengeance for our God, and to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of, and the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Do you see the exchanges he wants to make? I'll take your grief. I'll take your pain. I'll take your mourning. I'll take your spirit of despair, and I will give you my glory. I'll give you beauty. I'll give you oil of joy. I'll give you a garment of praise. Reading on. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Talking about in Judah, where the literal heaven will one day be. Chapter 63 is that day of vengeance. This is a a prominent passage and a reality of the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation for all the people who have said, no, we don't want you. Stay away from us. I will live my own life on my own terms. Joel 3, Revelation 14 describes this extensively, but they're gaining it here from the book of Isaiah. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in the, generate, in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading out a winepress? Jesus says, I have trodden the winepress alone, from the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all and I stained all my clothing. It was for me a day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, in my wrath. I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. This is the harsh reality that if you say no to God, he will give you what you want. If you say yes to God, everything he has is immediately yours. This isn't a, as difficult a picture as it used to be. If Jesus was going to achieve salvation today, which country on earth would support him? A hundred years ago, you might have said this country. You wouldn't say that today. We are fulfilling prophecy. Your role my role is the same. If 
the country I've lived in has said, God, we don't want you. He doesn't want wrath. He doesn't want vengeance. He wants to pour out his rewards. But if you say no, he says, I'll give you what you've asked for. You don't want me. You don't have to have me. Turn to Isaiah chapter 65. The promises and the blessings come together. The choice is yours. The outcome is not. He is ruler. We see this amazing picture beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Isaiah, Isaiah looks forward to the millennium and on into the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. This is a, a promise that the things of this earth, the people of this earth that you know that will not be in heaven, he will take that from you once you are in the final new heaven and the new earth. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies a hundred at a hundred will be thought to be a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. Hold your finger right there because we'll be right back to chapter 66, but turn to chapter 25, which is pointing to that exact same time period that we're reading about in 65. So these things will go perfectly together. When we go to Revelation 21 and verse 4, we will see that every tear is wiped away. We will see in Isaiah 65 that our memories are wiped away. There are tears in heaven now. There will be tears until they are wiped away in Revelation 21 after the judgment of the lost. But in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, on this mountain, from Abraham offering his son to Solomon building the temple to Abraham meeting in Genesis 14, Jesus um, on this mountain to where Christ was crucified to where he will come again in Jerusalem, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud, meaning sin and, and what has happened since the Garden of Eden that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. We sang about that this morning. Hosea um, 14, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? He will destroy death when he comes. He will swallow up death forever, the sovereign Lord. Adonai Yahweh will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And this is what we'll say in heaven. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in our salvation. That statement will never get old in heaven. In Isaiah 66, the last chapter, 
humility is an important aspect when coming to God. I would like you to share the throne with me, Jesus. Not interested. I would like to trust you and allow you to prove to me that anything that I would decide, you would decide more effectively. Anything that I would want, you would give me more. You take the throne, Jesus. I will gladly do that, he would say. Verse 1, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Jim, is that you? Are you humble? Do you have a contrite spirit? Is God always right whenever you disagree? Do you tremble at the word of God? Those are the people that he delights in according to his word. Drop down to verse 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make, that I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look for the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me, the worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. You want to hear some more good news? If you give your life to Jesus Christ today because these blessings are too overwhelming to turn down, he will accept you. If you give your life to Jesus Christ today because these judgments terrify you, he will accept you. That's why he gives you both. Again, it's like a, a, a parent taking a 10-year-old son to the doctor and his arm's been hurting and, and the doctor tells the parents when the child's removed, you know what, he, he's got something in there that if we don't take care of it, his quality of life will be limited and he will lose his life eventually. And the doctors tell the 10-year-old child, the doctor says that your quality of life will be limited if you don't have this surgery. And that's all they tell him. If I'm 10 years old, I'm saying it doesn't hurt that much. <laughs> if you tell me I'm going to lose my life, do what he needs to do. So Jesus gives us both. Let's go back to where we started in Revelation chapter 22. We already read that his reward is with him. read that in verse 12 that his reward is with him verse 13 that he is he has the authority to give it we look now at verse 11 let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong it's up to you let the vile person continue to be vile let the one who does right continue to do right it's up to you 
and let the holy person continue to be holy. Here's his offer, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Let's pray. The heart of a God who has all power always says, come. Come to me. Trust me. I love you. I'll give you everything. I proved that on the cross. The holy nature of our God says, if you refuse me, I want you to know what the outcome will be. It's up to you. Lord, I pray that someone today might make that decision. I didn't know I had a decision. I didn't know it was reliant on me making a decision. But Jesus, today, I confess you as my Lord. I believe in you and the finished work of the cross, that you did that for me. And I will follow you with my life. And I know, Lord, that you will show them for the rest of their life here and for eternity that they've made the right decision. Thank you for your offer. In Jesus' name, amen.